0: One, I am a human.
1: (laughs) Let's go eat batteries. I mean, human food.
0: Human food, hot dogs, and applesauce. Mmm, yummy. (laughs) Hello, everyone. This is episode (laughs) one thirty-four of Left of Skeptic. My name is Brittany Land, a A totally normal human. And I am Kayla Moria,
1: also a totally normal human. (laughs) And we are a paranormal podcast. Yes, we are. A paranormal podcast hosted by totally normal normal humans.
0: humans. Uh, How are you? How are you? (laughs) I'm good. Hold on one second.
1: (laughs) I did that thing where where I found myself questioning like, are we yeah 134 is right okay just check it well,
0: i'm glad because otherwise what a waste of an intro <laughs> the beautiful perfect intro i
1: questioned myself there but i'm glad <laughs> uh so yeah i'm good uh very tired mm-hmm. we have yet another week where we are i recording and me band in one
0: day yep and we're recording and me editing in, in one day. day but you know what I think, I think it adds to the spice of life. Yeah, no, I'm saying. It's <laughs> like, and at least we knew this one way in advance yesterday. Well, damn your internet problems. Ah, girl, I, dude, yeah. Cara was here, and, and she's like, can I have access to your, I told her, you can have access to my internet so you don't have to use your roaming data from Canada. And then she's like, it won't connect. And I was like, "Ah, oh, fuck. Sorry, just kidding you don't get the internet.
1: Use your roaming charges. How How are you?
0: <laughs> I'm in a weird mood. Me too. Like I don't I don't know why what happened. I've had like two sips of my beverage and even before I had any of it, I was just giggly, googly. What? I don't even have a beverage. Oh my god, what are you doing?
1: Go get one. Hold on, I'll go I'll be right back. Because what are we gonna crack into if I don't have something to crack into? I'm saying. We're not cracking a- into your fucking weird rubber straw. This has Vikra
0: gin in it, okay? <laughs> there's a Frenchie in there. Do you want the Frenchie?
1: What's a, what the fuck is a Frenchie? From Vikra. Oh no, I'm good. Alright. Yeah. Okay.
0: Out of breath, she literally ran down the stairs. Okay, so
1: obviously we're both doing good. <laughs> we established that, but as far as what we did this last weekend, uh, yeah, yeah, Take yeah. Take it away,
0: girl. Take it away. We hung out with Cara Babcock. Ah, she stayed at my house. It was so good. She's so nice. <laughs> you said that in a very sexual way. Uh, it was but it's just so good.
1: Which is funny because. Kara has no interest in my bits. No. Zero. But anyway, it was <laughs> It was a very good time. We hung out, we antiqued. Yeah, we shopped. Um we ate some food, pickled. You did not die because there was nothing that you were allergic to in the pickling, so that's nice.
0: Nor did I die from those Unbelievably hot jalapenos. There you go. And then, uh, and then Kara got to stick around and watch the Vinzigahosen show. Vinzigahosen. We got to experience two harbors and husband Phil. (laughs) Husband Phil is great.
1: Even if like two seconds into the conversation, I was like, Phil, just don't fucking talk. Oh yeah. He (laughs) says some wildly inappropriate things. He's a wildly inappropriate, but yet the sweetest man in the world.
0: I know. We had to explain to him what being woke meant, and then we had to be like, I'm sorry, sir. You are indeed woke. Oh, yeah. No, Phil is totally woke. And he's like, I am? I don't know. I'm like, you are. I assure you. (laughs) I assure you, sir. Uh, And did you see
1: how adorable Lisa and Phil were dancing? Oh, my
0: God. I have a video
1: of it. It's so good. I'm going to have to post it because it's adorable. So we are rambling a lot uh, because none of this makes sense to people who weren't there. But just to be clear, oh, yeah. just to be clear. Welcome it, to our inside conversation this, recorded on the podcast. This was fun. It was amazing. Kara uh-huh. is great. I'm so happy that we got to meet her in person, IRL. IRL. And I am, I just had
0: a really good time this whole weekend. So. It was lovely. Uh, she turned me on to some teas. I have now a cake flavored tea oh <laughs> girl i'm gonna send some home for you because it was really good <laughs> It's really good um yeah we should probably uh crack on into it so i can get to pracky hell yeah yeah i got hell a yeah. long
1: story this week let's crack into it
0: let's do it And we're back. Brittany? Mm-hmm. Kayla.
1: I'll wait for you. But I can't wait forever. Oh. Spare me just three last words. I and love and you. I love you is all she heard. I'll wait for you.
0: Wait, were those the last three words? Oh But I can't wait Damn. forever.
1: Cause I can't make it on my own. Cause my heart is in Ohio.
0: That's right. (laughs) We're going to Ohio this week. I wish people could have seen my face.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to be telling you about the Gore Orphanage Road and Swift's Hollow in Vermilion, Ohio.
0: I am so excited about this. I saw this on your dibs list. And all I think about when I think of Gore Orphanage is that one episode of Supernatural. Which, that's, so this is why I pulled it up. Because I
1: thought that that was completely fake, but it's not. Oh, okay. This is a real thing, but it isn't a real thing. This is, it's complicated. Okay. It is in Ohio urban legend but... There's some basis. It's like a weird tie-in. You'll see what I'm talking about. I'm very excited. Okay, so let's start with a little story. I love st- Okay, yes. I love it. Give me. It's the early 1900s, and in Ohio, Mr. Gore and his wife built an orphanage on an isolated road surrounded by woods. As the orphanage filled up with children, things could get a little loud. Like being next to a school or a playground, kids make noise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You would consider this normal. And as the Gores had no clue that they had a neighbor living alone in the woods who preferred his quiet isolation to the childlike sounds, oh, shit! they had no idea trouble was a bruin. Oh, this is not going to be a good story. No one in the nearby town knew anything about the man, except he would randomly be seen yelling at seemingly no one. Prior to the orphanage being built, once the orphanage was complete, the man turned his attention to it. Often he would yell towards it, complaining about the noisy children. And as the years went on, the Gores saw him as harmless, mm-hmm. just yelling into the void. In 1923, the man reached his boiling point. One night he yelled and cursed the children, wishing that the orphanage had never been built. As usual, the Gores went about their life. They ignored him and tended to the children instead. But that was a terrible mistake. Around midnight, as everyone in the orphanage slept, the man returned, barricaded the doors, and lit the orphanage on fire. Oh my god, that is an overreaction, sir. According to the legends, the man watched as the entire orphanage was engulfed in flames, and the terrified cries of the children within slowly died out. Following this, the man was never seen or heard from again. Okay, if he was just going to move away anyway, what the fuck? As a way to honor the dead, the town named the road nearby Gore Orphanage Road. Many came by to pay their respects, but soon those visiting started to hear the ghostly cries of children coming from the remains of the building. Word started to spread, and as more people traveled to Gore Orphanage Road to investigate, many witnessed the ghosts of these children running around. Other times, they heard the same desperate cries from the night as they burned alive, echoing in the woods. So this is kind of the most basic and generic version of the story from Gore Orphanage Road. There's a legend that has just been built up over the years. There are several versions. In all of them... A mysterious fire started in the building that quickly engulfed as the like it took over the entire structure. Mm-hmm. Lining up all the usual suspects from all the different versions, the likely cause of the fire was one of the following. Either Old Man Gore. In this version of the story, the owner of the orphanage, who was either attempting to collect some sort of
0: insurance money or just simply
1: hated children, sets the blaze.
0: <laughs> seems like he picked a bad job for himself by opening an orphanage then. A disgruntled
1: male employee. While he is never named, this shady character has some sort of beef with the orphanage owner, Mr. Gore, who in that version loves the children and decides to exact his revenge. Disgruntled neighbor man. Again, this figure is never named. All that is ever told about him is that he lived in the woods surrounding the orphanage and hated all the noise that the kids made. And finally, an accident. Uh, A more common version of the story is that one of the orphans accidentally knocked over a lantern or kicked over one in the nearby barn, and then the fire quickly spreads to the main building of the orphanage. In every version of the story, regardless of how the fire started, the results were catastrophic. Presumably, none of the orphans were able to escape the blaze and all perished.
0: Now, what I'm hearing is that men are evil. None of these have Mrs. Gore starting that fire. What I'm hearing is that men or children are evil. That sounds about right. <laughs> I bet it was a boy child. Start him young. Start the evil young. I'm sorry, I'm kidding. <laughs>
1: so the real story behind the land is not as sensational, but it's still pretty tragic. If you take multiple tragedies over the years, you can kind of piece together the whole thing in like a whole... Haunted Gore Orphanage Road, Swift's Hollow puzzle, and put it all together. The actual name of the orphanage that was on this road was either Light of Hope or Orphanage of Light and Hope or Light and Hope, depending on which version you find. Mm. Even, like, the more reputable sources kind of varied a little bit. Mm. And it was established in 1902 by a religious fanatic named Reverend Johann Sprunger, who relocated his orphanage from Indiana following numerous accusations of abuse and neglect.
0: Well, that's just great. I'm not really sure which story I'm rooting for now. Right? Right? All of these seem pretty awful. At least in the first ones, yes, the children died in a horrific fire, but they had a happy life. Right. They were playing, making noise. The orphanage was located on Gore Road, and this is not
1: gore-like viscera. (laughs) Good, good. The road was initially laid out along the boundary line dividing Lorraine County from its western neighbor, Huron County. So when a uh, surveyor, like, was looking it all over, Mm -hmm. he discovered a thin strip of land that had not been accounted for. Oh. And it resembled the gore of a dress. And, like...
0: What is a dress gore? Yep.
1: So a gore is a triangular or a tapered segment, narrow at the top, wider at the base, that is subtly inserted in to extend the width from the waistline to the hem of a skirt. So like it's like mm. a pleated skirt. That's a gore.
0: Hashtag fun fact.
1: Yeah. So that's why it was named Gore Road is because the road went along that line that looked like a pleated part of a skirt.
0: Ah, okay. Okay. So, I'm glad it didn't look like viscera.
1: <laughs> but everybody likes says Go Gore Road, that's so scary. Well, it's not viscera, it's a, you know, sewing, a dress. It's, it's a, a dress. sewing reference. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then again, due to popular association of the, you know, orphanage and tragedy along with the road, the name of the street seems to be a fitting name for the location of our now infamous Orphanage and hellish story.
0: hmm
1: hmm So anyway, Johann Sprunger and his wife, Katharina, moved to the Vermilion area after their former orphanage in Bern, Indiana, was suspiciously destroyed by a fire. Katharina was the daughter of Christian P. Sprunger, Though no explanation has ever been given regarding the uh, Katharina's surname being the same name as her husband. I was just going to point that out. A diary of a worker of the former Light of Hope Orphanage in Bern states that the orphanage was run by brother and sister Sprunger. So,
0: I mean, in all fairness, though, they, it was a reverend, right? Yeah. So, a lot of, like... Uh, it, uh, like in the Amish community, that's very religious. They say "brother," this and that's just a term for man. Okay, but and and maybe look, look. I'm just trying to make it a little bit better. <laughs> <laughs> um, it might be it's just a really popular name. Sprunger. Well, it's not, not popular Johnson here. This
1: is not the Ericsons. Like <laughs> anyway. So, three orphan girls were reported to have perished in the original Light of Hope fire. Two of Sprunger's former Indiana businesses had also, and when I say the original Light of Hope, I mean like the Indiana one. Right, right. So, uh, two of Sprunger's former Indiana businesses had also ended in fire. Prior to moving to Ohio, the couple had also lost their seven-year-old daughter, Hilengonda, and a son, Edmund. The deaths appeared to spark a passionate obsession for religious pursuits by in the couple, and the Sprungers brought the body of their dead daughter with them to Vermilion, reburying her at um, like in a local property.
0: Okay, like they exhumed
1: her body and moved it with her, but not the son. I don't know why.
0: Well, because his name was just Edmund, and that's not interesting. <laughs> like Hilde Kofingen, Yeah, that one.
1: Uh, The new orphanage site, just outside of Vermilion, consisted of four sets of farm buildings and covered 543 acres. An abandoned mansion was also located on the property, and that mansion was known as Swift's Hollow. The once-magnificent Greek revival house was built in the mid-19th century by Joseph Swift, a successful farmer. Its many rooms were appointed with elaborate furnishings, ornate woodwork, marble columns, and other lavish decorations. And that building had its own bad history prior to the building of the orphanage.
0: Okay, are we thinking
1: cursed land? That's kind of what we're getting at. This is the piecing everything together. Okay. So in eighteen thirty one, Joseph Swift, you know, he had this Issue mansion. With fires. Oh no, no, no. This no. is that's that's for, the reverence. Yeah, no. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Joseph Smith built this Swift's hollow. And uh he had his beautiful mansion, but in 1831, Swift's five-year-old daughter, Trefenia, died. And then in 1841, Swift's 24-year-old son, Herman, also died. Soon after Swift's fortunes dried up due to poor investments and railroad businesses, he sold the home to Nicholas Wilbur. Okay. So Wilbur was a renowned spiritualist. And as we know, spiritualists love to take some tragedy on a property and turn it into something else. Uh, Yeah, they love that. So the spiritualist movement, they decided, uh, the Wilbers decided that they were going to start doing mysterious rituals and seances regularly in the secluded mansion home to try to conjure up the spirits of the deceased children. Uh, Why does it got to be the deceased children? The ghost of children was said to appear frequently at the seances held in a special room of the home. Wilbur's children were rumored to be psychic and could communicate with the ghosts of these dead children. While records and gravestones claim that the four Wilbur grandchildren died from diphtheria epidemic after the Wilbur's moved from the home, residents insisted that they died at Swift's Hollow and were buried there. The home was abandoned in 1901. And teenagers almost immediately began taking trips to the site, daring each other to enter the haunted home. Mm.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Classic story.
1: So that's the history of the actual building. The building still existed when the Sprungers bought the property. So Reverend Sprunger built a new orphanage, whole new building, and a self-sustaining religious community on the property. Workers were said to utilize the abandoned mansion as living quarters. He and his co-workers were devout Bible-believing Christian people. A chapel room was located in the boys' schoolhouse for frequent religious ceremonies. Up to 120 children were said to reside at the orphanage at one time. Boys lived at a farm called the Hughes Farm, and girls lived at a farm called the Howard Farm. The orphanage also housed a small printing press used to print their own schoolbooks, as well as a paper entitled Light of Hope.
0: Wow, I bet that was a really factual-filled school book.
1: (laughs) But rumors of darkness and despair soon plagued the light of Hope Orphanage. Orphan children ran away from the home, often wading through the Vermilion River to escape to the city of Vermilion. The children told horrific stories of abuse, neglect, and slave labor. Mm -hmm. The children were said to eat a diet of calves' lungs hogs' heads, and sick cattle.
0: What the fuck? What? What? Sick cattle?
1: Uh, Just as a side note, pig head isn't that bad. I eat mush. The one thing that comes from my terrible family Uh is that I like mush. You boil the meat off a pig's head, you mix it with some oatmeal and some other spices, and you put it in a loaf, it's delicious. Anyway, we'll move on. It's a part of using all the parts of the animal.
0: I mean, yes, that's why I didn't go, yuck is because I appreciate the fact that they were using all the parts of the animal, but I feel like there were also other parts that the children would have enjoyed more. Well, that's what I'm getting. Like, this is the
1: idea. So they're doing calves' lungs, hogs' head, and sick cattle. It sounds to me like they are using whatever farm animals they raise to make money and then just giving the kids the cast off. Yeah. So, this and this is, of course, if they were fed at all. Um, Some people said that they might have been fed corn, but corn was boiled in the same pot used to boil clothing and such as soiled underwear. What? Although there were cows on the farm, children were said to often only be given butter once a week and occasionally pepper or sugar. The children's rooms were infested with rats and vermin. On occasions, rats crawled into the beds and bit children while they lay asleep. There was said to be only one bathtub for the boys, which they were allowed to use once every two weeks and had to reuse water. Children told stories of Sprunger and the farm overseers beating them with a strap until great raw welts appeared on their bodies. Sprunger would also rent out the children to neighboring farmers to make them work. Illnesses and disease were alleged to be treated only by prayer. Witnesses stated that children received a lack of regular schooling. In 1909, an investigation was conducted, but because the state of Ohio at the time had no laws or regulations pertaining to things such as orphanages, nothing formally could be done about the conditions. The Sprungers admitted to much of the allegations against
0: them. They weren't even trying to hide it. I'm sorry. I know that the laws in America were, like, really far behind. And I get that, like, child endangerment maybe wasn't on the books but there must be some sort of like an assault charge that they could have brought against them they obviously were not trying hard enough but the th- like think about that though cuz
1: how long was like and how much is still okay of beating your kids most of the time i swear that's what i'm saying like there's not anything in those instances there's really not much it's fucked we this all is admit very that it's a upsetting fucked. story yeah <laughs> Um, Something else that ties into kind of mixing with the legend and felt relevant. Uh Shortly before the investigation in 1909, in 1908, there was a disaster that took place in the town of Collinwood, some 40 miles east of Vermillion. There were 176 elementary school students who were burned or trampled to death when they became trapped in a stampede situation to escape a fire that was consuming the school. The children began ascending down the stairs to exit after the fire alarm was sounded, but the front stairwell was blocked by flames. According to witnesses, the children at the front broke the lines and tried to fight their way back to the floor above, while those who were coming down shoved mercilessly. It, like, basically made a mosh pit of children trying to escape a fire. Oh, my God. So those who made it to the rear exit found it locked. Outside, the rescuers unlocked it, but because it opened inward and there was such a crush (sighs) of students, they couldn't get it open. So that fire swept through the hall, springing from one like area to another, catching everything on fire. The cries of children were dreadful and haunting. The school's janitor, a German-American named Herter, was accused of setting the blaze, though he lost four of his own children in that fire and was badly burnt trying to help a child mm-hmm. out of the fire. And for a time, he was detained in protective custody to keep residents from lynching him because they were convinced he set the fire, but... Most likely he didn't. Right. It was just like needing to pin it on somebody.
0: And this this part is like historically accurate. This is historically accurate.
1: Yep. God, so, that's awful. The horrific tale of this event is thought to have been relocated when families from the Collinwood area, which is now like East Cleveland,
0: mm-hmm.
1: moved further west of Cleveland. Some historians believe that the memories of this event were too disturbing for Collinwood residents to bear, and so- They moved the whole legend to the Gore Orphanage to make it, like, something you still talk about but don't talk about to these specific people.
0: Mm, You're kind of, like, disassociating what actually happened to make it more palatable for the people who would actually find trauma in it. Yep. And so, actually, this event
1: is what brought the end of the town of Collinwood. As, As a result of the incident... Unable to guarantee, you know, like fire safety and resources for its residents. Voters approved an annexation of Collinwood into Cleveland within two years of that fire.
0: Well, because Cleveland had the resources. So they're like, we want to be part of you. We're not doing this again.
1: So that was just one extra thing around that timeline that it isn't directly tied to this. But we believe that's where a lot of the legend stuff comes from.
0: Ah, Because they transferred it over. Yep, yep, yep. And that one guy, he definitely has a history of fires. Yep. So Mr. Sprunger,
1: shitty religious guy, died two years after the 1909 investigation, and the doors of the orphanage were permanently closed in July of 1916 after years of financial troubles. Pelham Hooker Blossom of Cleveland bought the orphanage property and leased it to farmers for a period, and then he finally just sold the land. The Hughes House uh, and, like, all its remains just went away. They got torn down. Uh, the actual orphanage building mm-hmm. was burned down, but with no one in it. Mm. And Strategically then the, burned.
0: Like, and then everything else was torn A down. A controlled burn, as one might say. Right.
1: The children of the Light of Hope Orphanage were dispersed throughout the community or returned to their relatives or guardians, and the nightmare was over for the children of, quote, Gore Orphanage, unquote. Many were too afraid to recount the conditions they endured at the institution. The few that had nowhere else to go were taken back to Bern, Indiana, by Mrs. Sprunger, along with her dead daughter. They exhumed her. Again? Again. And this was exactly 13 years after it first opened. So, Swift's Hollow, the mansion, Mm -hmm. is the location most often visited by those seeking a taste of the supernatural.
0: Okay, because that still exists.
1: No, it's actually mostly torn down, but you can see the The remnants of where it was. Yes. It's a graffiti-covered sandstone column and, like, general facility that marks the entrance of the area, which contains foundations of this once-magnificent mansion. Today, all that remains of Swift Mansion is that sandstone block from its foundation, and then located deep in the woods, these remains are now scrawled with graffiti left behind by late-night visitors. They stand in the forest like guidestones for all those daring to seek an experience of the legend of Gore Orphanage. The Swift's Hollow mansion became a mecca for late-night vandals, and it is presumed that one of them was responsible for burning the house down in late 1923. Mm. So, like, wasn't a controlled burn, but it was... Nobody was in there.
0: Okay. They okay. think
1: somebody, like, went in there and was like, I'm gonna burn this fucker down. Or,
0: or maybe it was, like, the... The story of the the clumsy orphan. They just knocked it over, and suddenly everything's on fire. <laughs> Mr. Wilbur, I don't know if you remember me mentioning
1: him. Uh-huh. Um, there's actually an early legend that says that Mr. Wilbur helped the Sprungers build the Light of hor- Orphanage after losing his own kids and, like, grandchildren. Okay. Mrs. Wilbur was said to have never recovered from that tragedy. Stories were told that she'd set the table three times a day and pass food to the children as if they were sitting there. And at night she would light a lamp and say, time for bed, children, come on, and then put the kids to bed.
0: That is so
1: sad. So in the early 1900s, after everything was kind of closed up and torn down, teenagers began to visit the home. In time, they began to take the first automobiles to Gore Road to attempt to get them up the steep ravine without stalling and to negotiate the sharp curves without crashing. Okay. The true test of bravery, though, was to enter Swift Mansion at night and prove you weren't afraid of the haunted house. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm.
1: The location of the orphanage is on Gore Orphanage Road, approximately a quarter of a mile north of the Rosedale, just across the small Vermilion River Bridge. And so, basically, there's these two roads that meet. You head that way, you're going to see the remains. Though there is no proof that any deaths actually occurred at the Gore Orphanage, I quote Gore Orphanage because it's what they keep calling it, but it's, we know it wasn't that.
0: Right. It was something life and love and yep. abuse.
1: The chilling tales of torture, abuse, and uh, the occult activity. Yep. Yep. <laughs> keep people coming back, claiming that perhaps the lost souls of children of Collinwood did descend upon the infamous area where many of the living are known to go in search of the spirits of forgotten children. Perhaps they seek the ghosts of the Wilbur children to be brought back to the land of the living. For over a century, visitors of the Gore Orphanage Road have reported strange experiences of glowing lights, apparitions, and chilling cries from unseen children. The area is said to be one of the most haunted locations in Ohio. So I'm going to get to some of the paranormal stories here, but and it was weird it was a weird story to piece together.
0: It it sounds like it, especially because there's just so many different
1: aspects. There's so many different versions. There's so many different things that like there's the whole fire in another area that people we think bring into the story. There's the actual terrible orphanage. And then there's the fact that the road was named after something that is not a person. But then they ascribed the name to a person just to make the legend make sense. And then there's these different families that bought the property. And then there's the weird like there's so much at
0: work here. I I have one question. Yes. Is it officially called Gore Orphanage Road? Yes. So,
1: interesting. I don't know exactly why. Like, some stories claimed they named Gore Orphanage Road after the orphanage that burned down. But the orphanage didn't burn down. As far as I can tell, it was Gore Road. Right. And then maybe the legend got so big... That they named it Gore Orphanage Road. Like
0: maybe it was called Gore Orphanage Road. For so long that they just were like, oh. I guess we'll make it official. We'll make it that. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I don't know exactly why, but it has never been Gore Orphanage.
1: It was Gore Road
0: and then it was Gore Orphanage Road. Right. Because Gore is not a name. It is a piece of a skirt. (laughs) Exactly. So.
1: Paranormal investigators say that the ghosts of Gore Orphanage Road may actually be esoteric imprints. A kind of snapshot in time. Frequently, violent or traumatic events seem to release an energy that imprints the action on a place or an object. So in this kind of haunting, things just repeat themselves over and over again, like a videotape rewound and replayed and rewound and replayed.
0: A residual haunting.
1: Yep. And so these hauntings can be seen, heard, felt, or even smelled. Ugh. Tragic imprints can even relocate themselves to other areas of high paranormal energy, which is the paranormal yeah. investigators okay. ascribing to, it's like a... Wasn't that other, wasn't that school like 40 miles away? Yeah, but if you, what's what's the thing that we talked about? And that is it also in Supernatural. Where if something gets talked about enough.
0: Oh, a like, tulpa. Yeah, so
1: like the way my brain makes it is like, okay... At this point, all the attention is over here. Maybe the spirits are like, we'll get attention if we're over here. It's just a thought. It's just a thought.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: So, ghostly apparitions, balls of lights, haunting screams of children, and visions of fire have been reported by many that have visited Gore Orphanage Road. Many claim to have found dusty fingerprints of children when returning to their cars the bridge that goes over the river on Gore Orphanage Road has some rituals associated with it, basically saying if you do this, you can bring forward that haunted activity that you want so much. Located around the 9600 block of Gore Orphanage Road, the bridge is traditionally listed as being in Vermilion. However, the bridge, like, straddles the Vermilion River, so it could also be technically in Amherst. Mm Mm-hmm. Incredibly, while this bridge has not one, but two very concise and intricate rituals associated with it, the background story as to why the bridge would be haunted is pretty much non-existent. By and large, most simply just wrap the bridge as part of the Gore Orphanage Road legend. Okay. They're basically saying that because this area is haunted, the bridge is haunted, and you know everybody loves a haunted bridge.
0: We've told so many stories about haunted bridges.
1: So, if you want to have paranormal experience on this bridge, better be ready for a workout because you have to choose from one of two different rituals and it involves a little activity. Ritual number one, drive onto the bridge, park, turn the engine off, and exit the car. Then you have to just take a little stroll. In some versions, you just have to walk off the bridge, while others you have to go walking down Gore Orphanage Road a short distance. Either way, you'll know you've walked far enough when you start to hear what sounds like a crackling fire followed by the screams and cries of little children. And that's your cue to get trucking back to your car. But get this, you won't be able to start the car until you physically push it completely off the bridge again. Okay. Ritual number two. For this ritual, you will want to bring your second set of keys for your car. Oh, jeez. So... You are supposed to park your car in the center of the bridge, turn the car off, and leave the keys in the ignition. Once you've done that, get out of the car and lock the keys in the car and walk off the bridge. Keep walking until suddenly you will hear your car start all by itself. But don't go running back just yet, because if you hang tight, unexplained lights and ectoplasm may appear around you. And then once you return to your car, you may find children's handprints on it.
0: I'm sorry. These are ridiculous. (laughs) These are the two ones I found. And whoever came up with them and does them is stupid. Like, the logic behind that is just non-existent. (laughs) Cars didn't even exist then. So actually, that's
1: a whole thing that they talked about. The bridge wasn't, this bridge that they're talking about did not exist until I believe it was 1956. But they're saying that because it was built on that road, they've taken over haunting it.
0: Okay. We've heard, hey. Okay. You're, you're making okay. that face, but you
1: have tried to convince me of way less practical stories. That is a
0: lie. That is not a lie. That is a lie. I usually try to be very practical in my haunted stories, Kayla.
1: Sure, dear, sure. I'm like the I'm like the placating husband. Yes, dear. All right. <laughs> So, I've got a few stories here. A gentleman named Victor E. wrote to Weird Ohio about his experience on the property. He said, I have been to Gore Orphanage only once. It started as one of the biggest letdowns I've ever experienced. But it turned out to be a pretty frightening night. Kids in my high school had been ranting and raving about this place for a few years before I took my trip there. I had never had any real desire to go. I don't believe in ghosts or bullshit like that, so I just saw it as a big waste of gas. Frankly, I, even though I had thought the stories were made up, they were pretty exciting. Being that my friends and I spent too much time sitting around being bored, we decided to take the trip to Gore Orphanage and see if it was worth all the hype. Before I go any further, let me explain this hype of which I speak. So this is where he goes into the version of the story he heard. Okay. Apparently, in the early 1900s, an orphanage stood in a patch of desolate woods outside of Vermilion. One night, one of the orphans was walking to the outhouse with a lantern. He tripped and fell, lighting a huge fire. The steps leading from the top floor to the bottom collapsed almost immediately. Townsfolk from Vermilion gathered, but they didn't have the time or equipment to stop the blaze. All they could do was stand and watch as hundreds of orphans, many floors above them, met their unfortunate and collective doom. They say it was so gruesome that people safe on the ground died from shock just seeing these kids burning in the inferno.
0: How tall is this orphanage supposed to be? And Many I, floors above them. It was a 17-foot-tall <laughs> orphanage. I kept this part of the. I was like, I could cut this out. I just kept
1: it in so you could see how legends grow and grow and grow as high schoolers tell each other these types of tales especially.
0: I know. High schoolers are idiots. <laughs> That's not true. Ever since then, people have said that the ghosts of these
1: orphans haunt the spot that the orphanage used to stand on. Kids from my school said that they had heard strange sounds in the woods like kids crying and doors slamming shut, even though there are no buildings close by. Some kids even said they actually saw some orphan ghosts, but I never believed them. When me and my boys went there, I was a bit creeped out by the road leading over to the place. It's really dark because of the overhanging trees, and there's a messed up looking wooden bridge you cross over. When we arrived at the site where the orphanage had once stood, it was hard to find even though one of the guys I was with had been there before. All four of us got out of the car and went into the woods. There were a few pillars and some bricks and stones and stuff lying around on the ground. Really, the only creepy part was the graffiti all over the place. There were six six sixes and stuff, but that's to be expected at a place like this. It was definitely not an ordinary place, but I was still doubtful about it being haunted. I did hear some strange creaking noises, but I'm pretty sure that was just the trees rubbing together in the night breeze. My one friend was freaking out, saying it was kids crying, and I will admit it did sound like it could have been. I think it was the trees, though. After a while, we decided to leave. Some of the guys thought the whole trip had just been plain sucked, or so they said. In reality, though, I think we were all a little creeped out from being alone there in those dark woods. And they were just trying to come off as tough. Regardless, we didn't see any little ghost kids, we didn't smell any burning flesh, and we didn't hear any doors slamming. What happened when we made our way back to the car, however, would change my tune about Gore Orphanage forever. As we got close to the car, my friend Jake noticed that all the windows were fogged up. He ran up ahead of us because he thought someone had been messing with his ride. It was his mom's car, and he would have been really pissed if anything happened to it. When we caught up with him, he was just standing there dumbfounded. There wasn't another human being in sight. It was a cool night, and there was absolutely no explanation as to why the windows were fogged up. And that's when our other friend Sean pointed to the back window. There, on the misty glass, were faint impressions of little handprints. We freaked out instantly. Trying to find a logical reason to explain the handprints and to calm down my friends, I pointed out that Jake did have a little brother who was only four years old, and the marks were surely made by him. Secretly, though, I was just as freaked by those little fingerprints as anyone else there, and was really just trying to convince myself that there was a rational explanation for them being there, which there was not. I still can't explain how the hell those windows got fogged up. If those handprints had been made by Jake's little brother, how is it that nobody noticed them on the way up there that night? The whole trip freaked me out badly, and I vowed to never return to Gore Orphanage. This all happened three years ago, and I have not been back to this day. I have have so many thoughts. So do I. We'll we'll get there. Okay. A woman named Ashley H. from Medina, Ohio, wrote into strangeandspookyworld.com with her experience on the bridge. She said, The bridge on Gore Orphanage Road is no joke. We weren't even out of the car when we heard what sounded like a scream coming from the woods. We walked a little bit off the bridge and started to climb under the bridge when something went running out
0: the other side. I'm sorry, they were already freaked out and then they climbed under the bridge? If you're freaked out, you still investigate. Okay.
1: (laughs) I mean, you could be freaked out and be like, ooh, it's a little spooky, but like, you're still going to go look.
0: Okay, okay.
1: My friend swears it looked like a little kid. I didn't see anything, but I can tell you what I heard was not animal. The running sound, just like a little kid would make. A Redditor, who has since deleted their profile uh, on Reddit, mm-hmm. posted on the subreddit Let's Not Meet about their experience on Gore Orphanage Road. This one bleeds into the kind of, it's less s- supernatural mm-hmm. and more satanic panicky.
0: Oh, fun. Okay, I'm ready.
1: All right. All right. So this was probably about six or seven years ago now. Guessing my age was around 16 or 17 in Ohio. I went to school around the supposedly haunted Gore Orphanage Road, and us stupid high schoolers, knowing this obviously, decided that it would be fun to go adventure-seeking, even with the road being illegal to drive down from dusk till dawn due to drug activity. But I will tell you this, I never went back after this.
0: Wow, that escalated really quickly. Not being able to drive down the road because of drug activity. (laughs) Well, yeah, and I
1: mean, I guess I don't know... I mean, they're at the time, they were in their teens, so was it actually illegal, or were parents just saying, like, fucking tweakers hang out there, like, don't go down that road?
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, side note, as a child, were you told that it was illegal to have the dome light on? Yes, everybody
1: was told that it was illegal to have the dome light on. It was never illegal. It's also not illegal to drive barefoot.
0: <laughs> okay, dismissing my thoughts, Kayla. <laughs>
1: It's just completely. I got to get to fan practice. (laughs) Okay. Okay. (laughs) We can't do a 20 minute rant on the lights in the car thing. Dome lights in the car thing. And the times
0: that our parents lied to us. (laughs) (laughs) I literally have had
1: this conversation three times in the past month.
0: There's something vibing
1: on it right now where people keep
0: bringing it up. (laughs) We all just realized. (laughs) And we all feel so betrayed.
1: (laughs) Oh, geez. Okay. So this Predator says, I never went back after this and I don't plan on doing it in the future. It's a Friday night, somewhere during the football season. So I'm thinking it was around October as me and a large group of friends decided to head to a nearby town to get a late-night dinner. From there, we just bullshitted about school, this, that, etc., before three of my friends, a guy and two girls, who I will not be naming, got on the subject of Gore Orphanage Road. Stupidly, we decided to go, around midnight. We drove out to where the road starts. It goes downhill into a marsh-like area, where there's actually a gate that was supposed to be closed. Didn't think anything of it at the time, as I had been down here a few times myself, and it was never closed, not even after dark. We make our way downhill, just fucking with each other in the car, trying to scare one another. My male friend is driving the car, I'm in the passenger seat, and both of the females are in the back. The road down by the marsh area curves to the right, whereupon a little ways forward there's a one-vehicle bridge. I remember it because of the copious amounts of graffiti on the metal guardrails, and a sign at the far end of the bridge, can't remember what the sign was. So, on the other side of the bridge, there's a little turnaround point, and the road dead ends a little ways past this point. But on the right side of the road is where the trail starts, the trail to the supposed Gore Orphanage Ruins. We briefly, and I mean briefly, discussed parking the car and going down the trail. Fuck that, right? (laughs) Yeah, we thought so too. Instead of turning around here, we decided to go all the way to the end of the road to the actual turnaround. Here, the driver put the car in park, shut off the engine, and extinguished the headlights. It was all stupid, harmless fun, us scaring the girls. We sat there for about five minutes before we decided that we'd had our fun and it was time to go home. The car comes back on, the lights on, put it in drive, and we're off back down the road. Things seem unchanged until we get close to where the trail started. On the left of the car, at the turnaround, was a truck parked, engine off. Holy shit, where did that come from, I thought. All of us were on edge a bit now. My friend driving just sat there a few feet back from the truck with his foot on the brake. He was convinced it was just another group of idiots like us that came to the area to just think of going down the trail. Obviously, I didn't give a shit to find out and told him to get us out of there. But this is where it got weird. We drive forward at a calm speed, passing the truck and making a slight turn onto the little bridge and chilling right there on the bridge are 10 to 12 individuals in tattered robes of various colors, some hooded, some not, and faces of the unhooded ones were covered in shitty tattoos or dirt and nasty beards and whatnot. (laughs) And even worse, they were brandishing shotguns and hunting rifles and staring at us as we came into view. At this point, I am mortified, thinking, holy shit, we are going to fucking die. The girls are flipping shit, But what my friend driving did, I will forever be thankful for. As stupid as we'd been at this point to even find ourselves in the situation we were currently in, upon catching sight of these people, he just gunned it. Not even thinking about the possibility (laughs) of hitting one of them. We sped past them and along the marshlands, now to the right of us, just flying up the hill back onto the main road. None of us could believe what we had seen. felt like it was a goddamn Stephen King novel we joked about and afterwards
0: surprisingly probably just to lighten the mood since we almost died. I mean, that sounds fucking terrible. Where where is this in the mountains? Are these mountain people? <laughs> no, just Ohio.
1: <laughs> Thought that was it? Nope. So I get home about 15 minutes away from all that and for obvious reasons I can't sleep. So I stay up pretty much all night doing whatever it is that I did at that age, play video games or watch TV maybe, and around 5.30 a.m. when my dad comes home from work, he's a state trooper and patrols the area from time to time, he asks me this. As if he cyclically knew that I felt like being an idiot that night, he asked me, Were you down Gore Orphanage Road tonight? Thinking he'd get pissed at me if I said yes, I lied. No, why? I asked. He started taking off his bullet proof vest and his gun belt before telling me got a weird call about some satanic crap like chanting and fire down in the woods from Mr. Redacted. I asked him if he went down there to which he replied he did and his cruiser shining a spotlight into the woods and there was nothing. Okay. Mr. Redacted was the father of my friend in the driver's seat that night. I started to think he told him what happened but later decided that was not the case for two reasons. I don't know why he would say anything to his dad about the fire and satanic chanting. I didn't see anything of that. And they live literally five minutes walk from that area, and he might have just been able to see or hear those things. Nonetheless, everything went on as normal from then on for me and the two girls. However, my friend who lived nearby began to be stalked by people who kept showing up on his front lawn staring at his house every couple of nights. They'd spray paint shit on the trees in his front yard too, but he never discussed with me what they sprayed on the trees. So it beats me what it was. Thankfully, this stopped after about two or three weeks as law enforcement started to hang out there more. As curious as I am as to what they were doing down there, I think it's better that I don't know. Whether they were worshiping Satan, sacrificing a goat, or cooking crystal meth, I'm glad that my friend's car interior didn't get a makeover consisting of pieces of my brain. Thanks for reading. Haven't actually told anyone about this before. I never want to
0: meet these people again. Honestly, it sounds a lot like it could be the crystal meth part. (laughs) And then there are some people who think the
1: area is haunted, but not because of some sort of orphanage or because of satanic rituals and meth heads. Some think the area is just haunted because the land is cursed.
0: I called it (laughs) pages and pages ago.
1: (laughs) Alan Hopewell, who published one of his many experiences in the area on a site, said, As I've mentioned before, the area to the south and west of Lorraine has a long history of unusual occurrences. We camp in this area. This story takes place near an area known as Gore Orphanage Road. If you Google Gore Orphanage, you'll get a number of listings about a legend of a fire at an orphanage and phantom children. There was an orphanage there and a fire, but the place was unoccupied at the time. Indeed, the site where everyone goes to experience the hauntings is not where the orphanage was. The true tale of Gore Orphanage can be found on Google and is a story for another time. The area itself, however, has its own history and eerie record. The year is 1981, and I'm out cruising with a friend, Walt, and his girlfriend, Shelley. We decide to visit Gore Orphanage site, as Shelley's never been there before, nor have I been there at night. There's not much to see. Once we arrive, the foundations of an old house out in the middle of nowhere with two-lane road going past. We're sitting there in the car, looking around when Shelly says she's getting creeped out by the place and wants to leave. Walt fires up the Mustang and off we go, headed north to catch Route 6, then back into Lorraine. Suddenly, there's a car behind us. Literally out of nowhere. It didn't turn in behind us at a crossroad, It was just there. It was a large, old-fashioned car like a gangster car from the 30s. A black silhouette with blazing headlights. Even as it passed under streetlights, that's all that was visible. The car kept about a car-length distance between us. If we slowed down, it did so, or sped up along with us. Looking over his shoulder at me, Walt said, Man, this thing's starting to get me. What we're going to do is this. I'm going to pull into the next driveway where the lights are on. I'll Uh jump out and knock on the door. Uh -uh. The car might keep going. If not, we'll ask them if we can call the cops. Mm. Considering that we had weed and beer in the car, this should tell you how freaked out we were. Uh. Sure enough, there was a house up ahead with the porch and living room lights on. Walt swung into the driveway, but before he could get out of the car, the shadow car pulled up behind us, Ah. smacked the rear of the Mustang with its front bumper, then immediately pulled back out and headed back south where it had come from. We, on the other hand after the car left, headed north back towards town. We continued for a couple of miles to a crossroads. Speeding towards it, through it, from the east, was the Shadow Car. (sighs) May have simply been a trick of the light, but I couldn't see anyone at the wheel. When we got to a gas station on Route 6, we stopped to check the rear for damage, and as hard as we'd been struck, there wasn't a scratch. So, whatever the true story of Gore Orphanage... Gore Orphanage Road, Swift's Hollow, anything like this. It's freaky, man. It's (laughs) freaky. So, there's a lot of pieces to puzzle together. There's a lot of ideas behind the area. But no matter what, something's going on there. And that is the story of Gore Orphanage Road and Swift's Hollow in Vermilion, Ohio.
0: Wow. (laughs) I don't even have words... No words, no words. Uh, that was a, a roller coaster of thoughts and ideas and stories. Um, where to begin <laughs> Well
1: let's let's do this. On a skeptic scale of Paranormal, para being five, normal being one. what are you gonna give it? Okay,
0: I'm gonna give uh, Swift's Hollow a two. I'm going to give the place where the orphanage was a four for residual hauntings. I don't believe that it has anything to do with the school that caught on fire. I think that there was just enough trauma that happened there. And anything fire-related might have some sort of connection with the fact that the crazy religious weirdo who owned the orphanage... Also had multiple buildings of his catch on fire in the past. Yep. I'm going to give the bridge a zero. I think that's bullshit. Everything about that. Um, And I think that it is youths, teenagers, I don't know, who are just like fucking messing with people. Like however (laughs) many stories we have of teenagers going down there, you know, you know, you know people who would just hang out there just to freak people out. Oh, absolutely. Oh, also, side note, I really hope that anything that has to do with a little kid handprints, that there are literally neighbor children just who, go up, wait, fuck up. who wait until they see headlights, and then they're like, yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm going to give the whole area a two.
0: Yeah. I just think it's a
1: fun local legend, but yeah. I don't think there's much substance behind it.
0: Same. Same. But my God, the research girl. That went on so, it was like a wheel with all the little, what are they called? Oh, shit. I've been talking for like an hour.
1: Not quite that long. Holy fuck. That took forever. (laughs) (laughs) No wonder I have to pee. All right. I'm going to pee quick and we'll come back. We'll do your story and then I got to go to Pracky.
0: That was funny. All right. We're back. We're situated. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so I am hardcore crossing my fingers that we haven't done this one before. Okay. Because, again, I haven't had internet for literally days. (laughs) So I could not look at our list, and I just had to do my notes actually really early this morning at work. Like I got to work at 6.30 in the morning (laughs) so that I could use that internet. Uh, But I don't think we have. Uh, So, uh, here goes nothing. All right. All right. So, tonight I'm going to tell you about the Colonial Inn in Concord, Massachusetts. Not only do I think we
1: have not covered this before, I don't know that we've done a Massachusetts location.
0: Oh, well, in that case, hallelujah. I
1: am, like, (laughs) I am... Racking my brain. I don't know that we have done a Massachusetts location.
0: Yeah, we've done Virginia. We've done some New York. All right. All right. Well, here we are. We're going to Mass. Let's let's go to Mass. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anyway, so given the name and location, it's probably not all that surprising that this establishment, or at least the building, is really old. Part of the original structure, the eastern section, which is still in use today, was built in 1716 by a man named Colonel James Minot, who would later pass the property on to his grandson, a cabinetmaker named Ami White. And Ami White is quite the character, but I'll get into that a little bit later. Okay. So I believe that it was during Ami's time at the house that they now considered central building which holds the Village Forge Tavern Room, was built, which was then used during the Revolutionary War as a storehouse for weapons and provisions for the patriots. The house stayed in the family until the Whites sold it to John Thoreau in 1799. Hashtag fun fact, John Thoreau was the maternal grandfather of American naturalist, essayist, poet, and philosopher Henry David Thoreau. I wondered why that name sounded familiar not a common name. It's not, no. Uh, but sadly, Grandpa Thoreau didn't live long enough to really enjoy his purchase, passing away only two years later in 1801. But the property stayed in the family with his son, John Jr., and his wife, Cynthia Dunbar, inheriting the house. During this time, the building was split between a residence for the Thoreau family as well as a variety store, a very whaley house of them. Yes. And Henry David Thoreau did actually reside there along with his aunts for some time while attending Harvard. Harvard. Go pack your car in Harvard, yeah. So sometime in the mid-1800s, the family also used the house as a boarding house, the Thoreau House, which, according to the inn's website, was in honor of Henry's aunts, who were known as the Thoreau Girls. Why is that funny to me? I don't know, but it made me shimmy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thoreau girls. The Thoreau girls.
0: Despite John Jr.'s passing in 1859 and Cynthia's in 1872, the Thoreau house remained in the family until 1889 when it was purchased at auction by a man named John Maynard Keyes. So Mr. Keyes then used the property as both a boarding house and a small hotel. And he would go on to rename the Thoreau House as Concord's Colonial Inn in 1900.
1: Okay, real quick question that you may or may not know the answer to. Yes. What is the difference between a boarding house and a hotel? Like, is the hotel short-term and boarding houses are long-term? I believe so. Okay. I believe that that's
0: pretty much the only difference. Okay. And then I guess it was just... Business as usual, nothing interesting happened for about 60 years until 1960, when the inn underwent a big expansion, adding the Prescott Wing, which was the addition of 32 new guest bedrooms and suites, versus the inn's original 16 bedrooms. The dedication of this wing was made to William Prescott, who was a colonel in the Revolutionary War. He was the guy who commanded the American soldiers in the Battle of Bunker Hill and famously told them, do not fire until you see the whites of their eyes. I feel like.
1: I, because you said famously, I feel like I should know what that is. I don't.
0: Oh, it is referenced in so many pop culture things. Okay. Uh,
1: Yeah. It's probably been referenced in things I've watched and I just didn't know where the hell it came from.
0: It for sure (laughs) has. I also didn't know where it came from until this story. I was very excited. I was like, I understand that reference now.
1: Mr. Hermanson would be so disappointed in me. (laughs) Disappointment, Kayla. Anyway.
0: Half my life. (laughs)
1: Anyway, let's go.
0: A decade later, there was an expansion of the dining area, adding what is now known as the Merchant's Row Dining Room in honor of John Thoreau, who was a merchant in Boston, which continues to be the main dining room in the inn. In 1988, the Colonial was purchased by a German hotelier named Jurgen Demisch, who owned the inn for 27 years before selling it to Michael and Dorothy Harrington in 2015. Just, just one year before its 300th anniversary of the original building. Hey, Jürgen had it set, you know, like he, 1988,
1: but then before it gets, like, jacked up in, in taxes because it gains that much value from being 300 years old.
0: I mean, you'd think it would have been paid off by then. No, I'm just, like, the property <laughs> taxes. That, this okay. is me This is me
1: trying to just make up an excuse for why you would just randomly own something. I was, like, a year for, before. Yeah, right? I'm trying to come up with an excuse for why you would sell something before such a large thing that you would think would bring in a lot of income. Maybe he was like...
0: I mean, maybe maybe it brought him more income because he's like, dude, one year from now, you can have a whole ass 300-year party. True, very true, very true. So the Harrington's... Tricentennial. Tri- Is that what it's called? <laughs> Wouldn't that be what... Because it, it's a bicentennial if it's 200 years old. Oh, yeah, tricentennial. Oh. I mean, yeah, Cara, tell us. <laughs> <laughs> you scholar, tell us. Uh the Harrington's remain the owners to this day. So they've been the owners since 2015. Okay, so now that we have the history covered, let me jump back to that guy that I mentioned earlier, Ami White. Okay. Like I said, he was a cabinet maker. He was the owner of the inn when a portion of it was being used to hold weapon and other supplies for the Concord Minutemen during the Revolutionary War, and he did not like the redcoats. And he famously let them know a lot of people doing famous things in this story
1: well redcoats as i understand generally were disliked right yeah if i learned anything from hamilton (laughs) i learned that
0: so back in (laughs) 1775 oh i love it uh we haven't mentioned hamilton in a really long time so i really appreciate you bringing it up (laughs) People who are Hamilton fans are like, it's about time, Kayla. This used to be an every episode kind of thing. Well, you know, I'm not throwing away my shot. I'm not throwing away my
1: shot. I am not throwing away my shot. You know, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not throwing away my shot. Sorry, continue. So back in
0: 1775, (laughs) which I believe is the year that the Revolutionary War started, 1776? Don't quote me on that. I don't know. Cambridge Sandy School District was terrible. <laughs> uh, anyway, so there, in, in 1775, though, whenever it started, there was the Brit- there is uh, a British spy named uh, John Howe, in quotations because he was a spy. I don't think we know his name, who was alleged to have stayed at the inn. And he was tasked with examining the roads, bridges, and fording places to figure out the best route for an army to take between Boston and Worcester. 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 Worcestershire. I don't think it's full Worcestershire. There's not, a, there's not enough it letters. Uh, W-O-R-C-E-S-T-E-R. Worcester? Worcester? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, and and so he was, he was basically tasked. He's like, the British Army was like, dude, go figure out in this area what is the best way for us Red Coat guys to come and destroy the military stores that were deposited there. So, we know they have a lot of weapons. We know they have a lot of products. Tell us how to get there so we can take it away from them. Because that's what the British wanted to do. Just take everything away freedoms. This is where the 12 men of... T. tea.
1: This is where the 12 men of Stars Hollow bravely stood and
0: <laughs> yes. waited and... Yes! <laughs> yes! <laughs> Gilmore Girls! <laughs> a reference you could understand. I understand that one! Ah, it's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> so, during this British spy's time in Concord, he was introduced to a man named Major John Buttrick. Uh, and, and he was one of the leaders of the Concord militia during the Battle of Concord, who another fun fact, was the man that ordered the famous shot heard round the world from Ralph Waldo Emerson's poem, Concord Hymn." Okay. You know the... No. Um,
1: I've just accepted that half the stuff you're going to talk about in here. I like I can't for once
0: have a... Uh, like,
1: like I, culture I, references. But if I can't link... But, is it popular culture or is it historical culture?
0: It is referenced in that one song from Cadet Kelly on the Disney Channel. <laughs> <laughs> I think the words are, it was a shotgun bang heard round the world. Okay, but. I'm just saying, look, it was always on the commercial on Disney Channel.
1: <laughs> I just remember picturing Hillary Duff with the ribbon dancer. What? Look at Christy Carlson Romano and her just
0: going. They were so into it though.
1: I don't know I heard a shot back her Yes. I
0: Okay, so so Yes. That is one of the cultural references, pop culture references for this. But basically the shot heard around the world is, from what I understand, a reference to the beginning of the Revolutionary War. Okay. But so this guy who befriended this spy is the guy who allegedly made them shoot the shot that was heard around the world. Okay. The alleged first shooting in the Revolutionary War. Okay. All right. So...
1: <laughs> We're in a funny mood tonight. I have band <laughs> practice. Sorry, boys. I'd apologize, but you don't listen to my fucking
0: podcast, ya hosers, <laughs> ya hosers, ya Vinziga hosers, vinsigal hosers. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> sorry. Pants, it- you pants. <laughs> <Whew>. <laughs> Anyway, so this British spy (laughs) met up with Major John Buttrick (laughs) who invited him to dinner in the Village Forge Tavern Room (laughs) at this inn. And according to his alleged diary, which was published some 50 years later, quote, I was now invited to take dinner at the tavern with a number of gentlemen. The conversation at dinner was respecting the regulars at Boston, which they expected out. By this time, We had got through dinner. After dinner, we walked up to the storehouse to examine some guns. Of course. I told them I could make any they wished. Here I found a quantity of flour, arms, and ammunition. After examining the gates and the doors attached to the yard in the storehouse, I returned to the tavern where, after taking some brandy and water, I took leave of them. Unquote. Okay. Okay. Now, I say alleged because some folks have questioned the authenticity of the diary, but the British did find out about the storeroom and the supplies, which brings us to Ami White. Okay. Full circle. We're coming coming (laughs) back. (laughs) We're bringing it back. All right. The British knew about the supplies, so they marched into Concord to seize them. On April 19th, 1775, the Redcoats had reached the North Bridge where the Concord Minutemen were waiting for them and a battle between the Minutemen and the Redcoats ensued. Ami, who was allegedly nearby chopping firewood, heard the shots and ducked for cover. After the smoke cleared, there were several British soldiers who had been struck down and killed, and one who had been injured but was still alive. Now, according to WickedLocal.com and Concord Tour Company's general manager, uh, Beth Von Duser, Ami, with hatchet in hand, Took care of it. Hell yeah. Get it, Ami. (laughs) Quote, the one soldier either sits up and Ami hits him in the head or he crawls downtown and gets hit in the head down there. There are multiple versions of the story, so we're not really sure, but the guy does get a hatchet in his head, and he's actually really dead after that.
1: (laughs) He's actually
0: really dead. Really dead, unquote. (laughs) And according to some historians, uh, this act of axing, may have inadvertently caused the British to retreat back to Charleston after a rumor spread that an American militiaman had scalped a British soldier. Wow. Yeah, so Ami, like, took fucking care of business, I'm saying. There are many people who believe that this soldier just may be the one that now haunts the inn, which was once owned by the man who slayed him.
1: Okay, I could see that. That's a... That's a good reason for a haunting.
0: Right? Guests report seeing a redcoat in the tavern asking for ale. When the bartender asks who is it for, they respond with, for the reenactor, only to turn around and see that no one is there. However, it should be noted that during the Revolutionary War, the British were usually not able to take their dead with them. So, realistically, since most of the fallen soldiers were buried throughout Concord, it could be any number of them looking for a drink. Not just the guy who was hatcheted. Legit. Also,
1: I'm sorry. If I, if I go to a bar and just see a
0: reenactor sitting there... You're never going to think it's a reenactor. Are you just going to assume it's a ghost?
1: No, I'm just thinking like... <laughs> I hope you assume it's a ghost. Like, have they sat there and chatted for a while? Because it would... I'm not just going to buy a drink for somebody because they're a reenactor. Because also... Like, I
0: assume they have money if they're a reenactor, because that shit is expensive. It sounds like you are not very patriotic. And what do you mean? Reenactors are actors. They get no money. They do it for the passion. They do it for the history. Which means they, they, they have, which means they are,
1: they fucking have money because they can buy that shit. I go to Renaissance Fair every year. I buy one item a year because that's all I can fucking budget. You're telling me you can afford all that shit and you can just have it?
0: Unless they're part of a larger organization that provides the costumes. What larger
1: organization provides those costumes?
0: The Reenactment Association of Massachusetts.
1: I don't know. I just, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. I don't know if there's a reenactment association <laughs> in Massachusetts. I'm just guessing. Yeah, I thought, no, you said that with confidence. I thought that was a real thing. <laughs> no, I don't think it is. Okay.
0: <laughs> I made that up. <laughs> Uh, but the tavern isn't the only place that seems to be haunted by the ghosts of the past. Okay. All right. So it is believed that a section of the inn that was once owned by a man named Dr. Timothy Minot, a uh, relative to Colonel James Minot, who built the inn. Mm-hmm. And it said that during the war, Dr. Minot used room 24 as an operating room for soldiers injured in battle, both Minutemen as well as Redcoats. The Liberty Room was a kind of like hospital bedroom where people just were, yeah, housed near death or not. And Room 27 was used as the morgue. Okay. So one of the first recorded sightings in Room 24 happened in 1966 when a newlywed couple stayed in the room. Judith Felons, unfortunate name, the wife would later write to the inn of having woken up in the middle of the night to a grayish glowing figure standing next to her. The figure then moved to the foot of the bed, staring at her the whole time. <laughs> and per onlyinyourstate.com, she said, I was so frightened I could not scream. Eventually, the figure floated around the room before fading away. It was like the figure was like, Daddy, daddy, da. Bye. I think it was a little bit more ominous than that. <laughs> I don't know. That you would said be floating around the room. Confusing. That's
1: like you said floating around the room. Like in my brain, that's like flouncing, Da-di-da-di-da. like flouncing. Uh,
0: I was thinking like. <laughs> uh, Judas' letter can now be seen on the Concord's Colonial Inn website, but Judas' account isn't the only guest account of spooky things happening in Room Twenty Four. Other folks have reported seeing a. Ghost woman. One man thought that he had woken up to his wife sitting at the writing desk, only to realize that she was actually laying right next to him. When he looked up again, she had disappeared. The middle-aged woman has been seen by several folks, and is thought to be a nurse named Rosemary. It's a good name. And a good herb.
1: Mmm, rosemary. And a good smell. Oh
0: my Some rosemary focaccia sounds so good right now. Oh, I'm so hungry. (laughs) And I get two. Okay. Anyway, 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 anyway. So others report seeing two revolutionary soldiers in the room covered in blood. Took a term from rosemary. Uh, (laughs) And the door is said to open all on its own. One guest staying in room 24 went down to the front desk in the middle of the night, nightgown clad and all, and told the attendant that she could not stay in that room. There was something in it. In fact, she was so terrified of whatever she had experienced in room 24 that she would not even go back up to get her things, but rather instructed the manager on where to find all of her clothing and toiletries so that they could collect all of her belongings for her.
1: That's somebody who takes that serious. Like, they're not, you're not making that up.
0: They're like, I'm fucking not going back up there, man. It's the middle of the night. I will not. I am in my pajamas. And I will leave in my pajamas if I have to. (laughs) However, when the manager went up to collect the various items around the room, they found that everything was packed in her suitcase, neatly, and set by the door. Well, then you would know
1: that that wasn't me. Because that's not how I leave a place. (laughs) By the time the vacation's done,
0: we're like, Disaster! (laughs) Disaster! I'll deal with it when I get home. The TAPS team... Visited Concord's Colonial Inn in a a 2010 episode of Ghost Hunters, uh, season six, episode 14, called A Shot in the Dark. Was Meatloaf there? (laughs) No, but they reference a shot made around the world by saying a shot in the dark, so they get it, Kayla.
1: Yeah, well, I'm rough. Uh,
0: (laughs) In the episode, these two guys, Britt and KJ, I've never heard of a man named Britt, but his name is Britt, B-R-I-T-T. Okay. At least he spells it correctly. All right. So Britt and KJ were investigating room 24. And one of the first things that they experienced was the sound of what they described as scratching coming from inside the closet. They opened the door. There was nothing there. Nothing they could see anyway. Bum, bum, bum. Later on, they were... Just asking if anyone was there and if someone could shut the door. And at first they heard like a squeaking sound like someone was walking across the floor. Because remember, this building is over 300 years old. Legit, yes, yes. Then they said that if whatever was there wanted them to leave, then they should shut the door. Because the door shutting on its own is part of this room's lore or whatever.
1: They're trying to prompt the, the activity.
0: Yes, thank you. So they were standing with their backs to the door, trying to figure out where the squeaks were coming from when the door shut on its own. Britt did not like it. Yeah. I wouldn't either. Yeah. They jumped. It scared them. And then they tried to debunk it as if, uh, like to see if it could just happen on its own. They were jumping up and down, causing vibrations. But the room is carpeted. Yep. And the carpet in the room, so you actually have to make an effort to shut the door. But you can see it in the episode. Like, Britt has his back to it, and it just goes...
1: Nope, that's why I like the TAPS teams. They actually, like, make a genuine effort and then show you in the episode how they made the genuine effort
0: to yeah. debunk it. Jumping up and down, all that stuff. All right, so at one point, Britt walks through the doorway into the hallway, and he was walking back into the room when the door shut on him again. Mm-mm. And he kind of, like, lifts it. like, ah... It's very interesting. Other guests of room 24 report flickering lights. One person even woke up with all the lights and the TV on when they had gone to sleep with them off. Okay. Folks have reported catching floating orbs and voices on the recording devices, and others have felt someone gently tucking them in at night. <laughs> Uh, The stairs leading up to room 24, one guest reported having seen the silhouette of a woman in an old-fashioned dress descending the stairs. A long-term maintenance employee claimed to have seen the ghost of a little girl in the hallway between rooms 24 and 22. Supposedly, she was a child who had passed away in the hotel due to illness. One hotel guest claimed that they were talking about the ghost girl, while they were in room 22 and had an actual recording of the sound of a child clapping in the background during the conversation. But, like, little claps because it's a child. There you go. Another guest during a paranormal investigation shared a photo that they took in room 22 of a ghostly mass on a bed. Okay. Oh, you have the picture. I have that picture for you. Yeah, that makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> I don't know what I'm looking at. But it seems like a ghostly mass on that bed. I feel like it was accurately described. Yeah, I don't like it. It's kind of penis-shaped. <laughs> I did not catch the penis shape. Either way, it's not, it's not good. It's not good. Uh, others report the sound of footsteps overhead, despite being on the top floor. And in room 27, guests claim to hear the sound of footsteps going up and down the stairs all night and of objects going missing or being moved. When TAP's team members, Jason and Grant, investigated room 27, they also reported hearing footsteps as well as the sound of a woman humming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm
0: in the liberty room again a place where folks were once brought after being injured in battle uh, which is now a dining room <laughs> cuz why not logically yeah that makes the most sense <laughs> yeah so folks report the feeling of being touched on the shoulder experiencing weird feelings no example of what exactly kind of weird feelings they experienced and there was one report from a guest who had looked into a mirror and saw the reflection of a man in a top hat sitting at one of the tables When they turned around to look at the table itself, he had disappeared. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Other folks report seeing shadows moving and workers claim to hear someone saying their name in this room. I don't like that. In Merchant's Row, which is another dining area and is just outside of the Liberty Room, multiple staff and patrons have claimed to see the apparition of a woman sitting at one of the banquet tables. Uh, This staff member was polishing the silverware, when out of the corner of his eye, he saw a woman in an old-fashioned navy blue dress with ruffles on the skirt. I don't know what happened after that, Oh, but he saw it.
1: He was probably
0: freaked out. Yeah, I would be too. Yep, legit, legit. When Jason and Grant investigated this area, they heard sounds coming from the kitchen and saw a shadow on the wall. When they went to recreate the shadow, they found that it could only have been made by someone standing in the kitchen doorway though there was no one else in that area at the time. After walking through the kitchen and confirming that no one was there, they continued to hear sounds coming from the kitchen, even after returning to the dining room. When Britt and KJ did their investigation of the Liberty Room, they also heard sounds coming from the kitchen, what they described as the sound of shuffling and dragging. Oh, why does dragging sound so uncomfortable? Because it sounds like... Ominous things have happened. True. Very true. This allegedly is a common occurrence. People uh, report hearing sounds banging coming from the kitchen when all of the kitchen staff has already gone home. And lastly, the front desk. So workers have complained of power surges, lights dimming and brightening, seemingly in response to what folks are saying something that both Brit and KJ experienced during their investigation while communicating via flashlight. Concord's Colonial Inn is no stranger to history. The events that happened in and around the inn have permeated not only the history books, but also pop culture, despite the fact that Kayla doesn't know any of it. (laughs) And according to staff and guests alike, not all of its history is left in the past.
1: Nice. That's a good ender.
0: It took me forever to come up with that ending. <laughs> Not all of its history is left in the past. Bum bum bum.
1: It feels more like a
0: like a gentle fade out. Oh, I, I okay. Like a PBS fade out. Oh. That's what that felt like. Okay, okay. Not all
1: its history is, is left, left in, in the, the past. Dun, 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 dun,
0: dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> uh but yeah, that is the
1: Concords Colonial Inn. Yep. On a skeptic scale, uh-huh. I'm gonna give it a three and a half.
0: Only a three and a half? Did you see all of the evidence that I presented to no, you? No, that is
1: so much evidence. It is it is
0: Taps team. The Taps team said it was haunted Kayla.
1: All right, four. You
0: love the TAPS team. I do love the TAPS You go even f- said, like, that's what I love about the TAPS team is they always try and, and disprove their their findings. Okay,
1: I'm going to give it a four. Point five. No, four. Mm. Stop trying to up my, <laughs> you already up my score of the point five. Okay. It's because, like, my brain wants to, like, say that I'm contradicting myself from previous episodes. I know that. My brain wants to say that this thing is so old that it could be kind of just creaky and loud on its own.
0: I'm sorry. Every other episode we would say it's really old, therefore it must be haunted.
1: Which is why I said I know I'm contradicting myself <laughs> right now, Brittany. Maybe I'm just not. Maybe I'm too tired from work. Maybe I'm just not in a believable mood. Maybe that's my problem. Maybe that's why I rated my own story a two. Like I no, don't know. Your story was a two. <laughs> <laughs> it totally was. You're right. All right, we'll go four.
0: Okay, that's fine.
1: Um, mostly because of the door thing. That oh, might have been the most convincing argument for me.
0: Okay, when I send you the. the sources for this i'm gonna have a link to watch that episode for free
1: okay please do i would also like to remind everybody that our ratings are arbitrary and changeable (laughs) on a moment's notice i know but
0: i still think i deserve a much higher rating Four.
1: you get four cool i'm gonna do 4.5 of course you are
0: because i (laughs)
1: because you've been trying to convince me to do a point and add another 0.5
0: look i have (laughs) so much evidence (laughs) like so much evidence you know this
1: conversation we're having right now? Yeah. Do you feel like at one point Kara listened to us babble back and forth where we just kept contradicting each other and was like, these these are my new friends?
0: <laughs> I thought this was just a bit they did for the podcast. No, this is all the time.
1: <laughs> Sorry, Kara, uh,
0: But also, thank you for visiting and we love you. All right. I have to go to band practice. It's a good thing we don't have a listener story. Just we- this one time. This one
1: time we don't have a listener story, but if you have a listener story you would like to share, we would love to hear it. If, even if I have to get to band practice, if I have a listener story, I will sneak that motherfucker in. <laughs> so, if you have one to submit, you can do so by emailing us directly, leftofskeptic at gmail.com. You can also visit our website, www.leftofskeptic.com, and click the listener stories tab at the top of the page. You can also click the link tree in our bio. You can choose to include your name or remain anonymous,
0: whatever you prefer. We just ask that you please include your pronouns. You can also follow us on social media. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Left of Skeptic and Facebook at Left of Skeptic Podcast. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us this week. We love you
1: and appreciate you very much. It's true we do. Happy Spooky Wednesday. Happy Spooky Wednesday. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye. This is going to be a bitch to edit. I know, I'm sorry.
0: The Left of Skeptic podcast is written and hosted by Kayla Moria and Brittany Lind. This week's episode is edited by me, Brittany Lind. The Left of Skeptic music is by Dave Melling and Emily Havoc. And our artwork is by Al LeBlanc. Okay, bye!